Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from another fantastic producer. I love these conversations, I know you do too. This week it's the most excellent Steve Levine. So Steve's career goes back to the 70s. He was a tape-op during the making of, for instance, The Clash's debut album, The Vibrators, all that fun stuff. His main claim to fame, I would say, or really the thing that put him on the map, was producing the first three Culture Club albums. He describes it really interesting in here, watching them go from absolute nobodies to world dominators. And what Boy George was like, and the dynamic in the band, and all that kind of stuff. He was essential in helping make their sound, and helping to make them huge. So there's a lot of really interesting stories here when it comes to Culture Club. I love them. He also produced a Beach Boys album. It's the one with Get You Back on it. That's one of my favorite Beach Boys songs, Get You Back. Steve did that. We're also going to talk about Quarter Flash, China Crisis, America, The Creatures, The Vapors. Uh, he worked on some John Hughes movie soundtracks. And he's still super busy, maybe busier than ever, working on things for projects for like the BBC and other productions. It's crazy. Anyway, the thing you'll notice with Steve is his level of enthusiasm. It is off the charts. I love his excitement for what he does and what he did and the work he's put out there. I love it. He's a really fun, interesting guy. He called me from his studio in Liverpool. What are you doing now? What's the what's the show that he attended? Well, for quite some time now, I've been, apart from producing records, which I'm continuing to do, I also have a radio production company, and we produced a program called The Record Producers, which was on BBC Radio 2 and 6 Music. It was essentially me interviewing my heroes as, that are record producers, but talking in a producer to producer light yeah. rather than a journalist or a fan and yeah. the other thing that made it unique was of course we all have an understanding a shorthand of the record production process and I argued very strongly with the BBC that actually dumbing down and simplifying is not what the audience want they actually do want the very fine detail I was proved absolutely correct because mm. the 
show was very successful. We did many, many versions of it, um, quite a lot of episodes. Mm. And then we started to do a few live events. In fact, the very first one we did was a Motown one where we had some um, multi-tracks. We had a couple of um, guests and we did that at Metropolis Studios in London. That was a ticketed event. That was so successful. We kind of undershot, actually, because we actually ha- had to do two sittings because we sold the ticket so quickly. No and way. loads of people were... Because obviously being in a studio, even though Metropolis is fairly big, it was still limited. And then more recently, we did a fantastic one with Lamont Dozier, which we did in a small theatre. So that was... Um, Ooh. I'm going to say 600, 500 to 600. I can't remember the cap around that. So it was yeah. sold out. It was absolutely fantastic. And even after interviewing him many times and doing the show, there was still one more story he told me that I didn't realize. <laughs> um, I mean, well, the story was on Reach Out Arby there. Now, I knew it's a chair, the sound uh-huh. of really is a chair. In fact, that, very similar to that. And it was loads and loads of echo. So when that reach out, I'll be there. Bit happens. It's a, a microphone on a chair, very compressed with an echo. Great. Uh-huh. I never knew who played it. And the, and the show, I was saying, tell me, Lamont, tell me the story of. <laughs> he went, oh yeah, yeah. It's a. It was a chair back because we wanted something, and the you know we'd already got the drum track down, and uh, Norman Whitfield was available. And I went, why, why, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Norman Whitfield played the chip played the chair back on. No Richard. way! So there you go. So yes, yeah, wow. so that was the the show, and and one of the other editions was with Sir George Martin, and it was the um, the celebration. We did one before, which was for uh, Sergeant Pepper, and then this time it was the the Abbey Road um, ones. But we, you know, they work really well live because you can do a Q&A, which you can't sure. do on the radio. Uh, sure. And then continuing with that, I've done many, many other radio shows. Part of my record production moves into the area of radio, where, to me, it's not very different. Yeah. Good quality sound, good quality engineering is exactly the same. Yeah. The only thing that was unique in this particular project was we had to do it through the pandemic, and so consequently everyone's performances were done separately. Wow. Wow. You're, I mean, you're busier than ever in a realm that, I mean, obviously, like you said, you're still doing the the production of regular traditional albums, but doing all this other stuff. Are all these shows that you've been doing for years, are they available to listen to for like regular guys like me? Well, they were for a period of time. I mean, essentially the BBC iPlayer has a window of time. And when Uh those were originally done the iPlayer was seven days it then went to 30 days and now it's a year so they're okay. not available and uh, they're just Shoot. available privately um, and also I have to also to keep quite a tight rein on people illicitly uploading them to YouTube there's been a few on YouTube that I've had to take down mainly because they're private also uh-huh. I really object to them putting them on YouTube at terrible quality and we intend to do something with them ourselves and I, you know that's mm. um yet to be decided we've do. done so many shows i actually genuinely have lost count of how many we did because it was you know the first series was the um, controller at radio 2 said to me steve for the first series our commission six but tell me what what's a record producer so we chose all the different types of record producers that we could think of six that covered different areas so for example in the first block of six we had trevor horn 
We also had He's Tony Visconti. He's my favorite of all time. So, so Trevor is very different to Tony Visconti, Tony Visconti being also an arranger producer. We also had, in that first series, we looked at the way that people came to record production slightly differently. Um, that made it really, really interesting. So, for example, Hugh Padgham was a engineer producer. It made it really different to just a Nile Rodgers musician producer. It gave the audience a feel, okay, they're all making records, they're all producers, but they've come at it from really yes. different yes. realms. And within each show, we were able to interview really great people that made a mm. real difference. You know, So, for example, even in Nile Rodgers' show, Bob Clearmountain made a, a kind of cameo because, of course, Bob Clearmountain, for those that don't know, engineered the Sheik records when yes. he was just an engineer. And so it makes some really interesting stories. I was very fortunate in many of the producers gifted me with some of their treasured possessions of multi-tracks or outtakes or pre-versions. In fact, on the Bob Clearmountain, it was really interesting. I was interviewing Phil Manzanera for the Bob Clearmountain show. Uh -huh. And Phil said to me, I don't know if this is going to be of any interest. I've got the, uh, the mix of Avalon before we gave it to Bob. Oh. And I went, oh, my God. So we were able to <laughs> play the band's mix yeah. and then cut in Bob's mix. And it was like oh. going from a black and white film to technical. It's like, slick, you know, hitting a switch and it just went, yes. bam. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. See, that's, I mean, I my platform is nowhere near as big as yours, but that's kind of what I aspire to do in shows like this. Our, for what, you know, producers and session musicians tend to be some of our most popular episodes because of things like you're talking about. People like you can come on and tell all these great stories about all the things you've worked on, all the different people you know and experiences you've had. And uh, it's to make that connection. My feeling strongly today, especially, unfortunately, music, the value of music gets lower and lower because no one wants to pay for it and it's so easy. But the value of storytelling gets bigger and bigger. And that's what I sort of feel like is the true is almost the real currency right now. No, you're right. But also missions. what I try and do is lift the lid on how complicated making a record is. Because it doesn't help when songwriters go, Oh, I wrote this song in five minutes. Well, they might have written the song in five minutes, but they didn't record the song in five minutes. And yeah. the public get confused between, oh, I wrote this song in five minutes mm -hmm. to a record. There's no record yes. today other than House of the Rising Sun, which was one take uh, and did take under three minutes. However, even that session, they rehearsed that song probably a million times. Yes. So nothing takes five minutes, nothing. No. And no. so it's very interesting when you hear the stories, you know, particularly in, in the case of, say, someone like Trevor Horn, where some of his greatest recordings were recorded multiple times, mm -hmm. scrapped, Mm -hmm. Recorded again, scrapped, and That's eventually what he's known for. the final right. version. You know? mm -hmm. And that part of the craft is is very hard to um, to get across to somebody, as you say, that just downloads the song and thinks nothing of it. You know, the the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making that record. It's so true. So let's start with you. When I was looking you up, um, I mean, I know the big things that we're going to talk about: the Beach Boys and Culture Club, obviously, Quarter Flash and stuff like that, but. There's a side to your career going back to the early days where you, I believe, were around and worked on maybe the first Clash album. And what did you, XTC, what did you do with these bands? Were you the tape op? Were you the T-boy? Yes, yes, indeed. So CBS Studios in the early 70s, well, I, I joined in 75. So the, the studio had been going for a couple of years, but was already going through 
an upgrade. So they had three studios in the, in the complex. Studio one was the huge classical studio. Studio two was the kind of trendy rock and roll studio. And studio three became the demo studio. And all the equipment that was recycled from studio one and two went up into studio three. And what CBS Records decided was in order to transition tape ops to assistant engineer to engineer, what better way than for them to work on demos because there's no cost to anybody. Mm. And at that time, just as punk was beginning to happen, it was really difficult for the record companies of any flavor to hear the band in a pub mm. because, you know, PA has moved on dramatically since, since, you know, even, even a few years ago, it's mm. every year, PA systems get better and better and better. Mm -hmm. You go to a concert today, it's pretty high fidelity mm -hmm. back in the seventies. If there was a PA, it was only for the microphones. The rest of it was the band and their amps balancing themselves, generally everything louder than everything else, and in a small pub. So when you went to see bands like The Clash and XTC and all those and the vibrators, it was really hard to hear the songs. There was a vibe. There was absolute. I mean, I remember sure. going to see particularly uh, the vibrators in Dingwalls in Camden Town. The excitement of going is fantastic. But you never really heard anything. And so the A&R men would gift those bands a day, a week or a few days in the studio so they could cut the tracks. They would then come down. In the case of CBS, the studio was located a few blocks from the, the record company, a, a, you know, a 10 minute walk. So they we could record the bands. They would come down, listen to them and they could hear now you know, in a more high fidelity way what the bands were. And that's how bands Genius. like The Clash xdc the vibrators all did their demos some of them got signed to the record company and consequently we carried on working with them so in the case of vibrators and clash that's exactly what happened the very first weekend we recorded with the clash we recorded white riot was the was in the first first session the record company came down to hear them we finished off what essentially was the demo that became the first single and carried on recording the album it never took very long as was the thing in those days. But even on something like that, we established, you know, myself and Simon Humphrey, we were the two engineers. So essentially Simon was already an assistant engineer and I was tape up transitioning to assistant. So that's exactly what the team was. You put the two people on a session. So I was tape up slash assistant, whereas Simon was assistant slash engineer. You know, you move up the food chain. Yeah. And they never had a producer on those records. It, although Mickey Foote is credited for the record, he was essentially their live guy. Okay. Mick Jones really was the producer on those That's sessions. But very early on, you know, we established a sound because the studio was relatively small and it was a, a old Neve. And, and in fact, the first sessions were actually on 16 track because the CO3 only had 16 track. Although it was 24 track in the rest of the building, in the, in the beginning, there was only a 16 track machine upstairs. Mm. And one of the things that we tried to do was cut the band live, which meant that Mick, and Joe did kind of two rhythms and then did the leads over the top of that, and we overdubbed vocals. But that became the template for all the tracks. And Simon and I worked on every Clash track up until White Man in Hammersmith Palais. That was the last track that we did. No way. We by then did that in Studio 2 and it transitioned to 24 track. But up, up until that point, you know, the first album was relatively fast. The vibrators actually was all done in Studio 2 on 24 mm. track. XTC was just demos, but then they were never signed to um, CBS. CBS. I have got those tapes. In fact, I spoke to Andy only a 
few weeks ago because I've got I've managed to get the some of those masters uh, which he hasn't heard for quite some time. Wow. Simon remembers also that we did do some sessions with you too. But for some reason, I really can't remember doing those sessions. I can remember nearly every band we did. Yeah. So Simon's not mistaken. It's just maybe it was so quick or maybe I wasn't on that session. But I maybe. I do remember all the others, you know. Okay. And within those bands, we also did demos for CBS's signed bands. So, for example, Sailor were already signed to CBS. Oh, they see. just had a huge hit with traffic jam mm. and then we did the demos w- for what would become glass of champagne and girls 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 they're huge hits um, Got it. so that's what so, it was it was a a way of us learning our craft with no it. real risk because the clients were getting the studio time free of charge there was so things did go wrong of course mm. you know we made terrible mistakes we were young and inexperienced but we also learned really well and sure. we were allowed a huge level of freedom which you know, the, which we didn't get on the other sessions, because on the other sessions, particularly in Studio Two, I'd often be working with American producers who had a very specific mm. way of working, which was great training for me as a young guy. But there was very little room for experimenting. In fact, sure. the only chance I got was when I was left with the gear on my own. And, and even in things like um, working with Sailor, you know, they used to use 2600s and things like that. And so I got very, very good. I got a, I had a very deep understanding of the, of early synthesis. Even though oh. I'm not a player, it mm-hmm. was the sonic thing. You know, they'd say, "Oh, Steve, can you get me a bass sound, or can you get me a flute sound, or something?" I could get the sound, and then the right. keyboard player in the band could play whatever the part was. Right. So, and that's you look at my studio now. You know, sure. synthesis has stayed. With, you don't unlearn; you just get yeah, better. That's exactly right. So, what is the responsibility of a tape op operator, tape operator, or whatever, on a clash session? Are you there in the room working with them? Is there banging out oh, white yeah, well, riot stuff like that? Yeah, well, so in the 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 role of the tape op is to assist the entire session, and so you obviously help set all the microphones up. But in the early days, for the younger listeners, uh-huh. the sixteen and twenty four track two inch machines had a mechanical counter on them, uh-huh. and so you wound the tape back from the beginning to the end. The counter used to slip. So part of the job of the tape up was to A, line the machine up and make sure it was technically correct. The heads were clean and everything was what it was. Label all the tape boxes. So when you look at the class tape boxes, it's my handwriting on the tape boxes because that was the job of the tape no up. Way. Also, the job of the tape up was to write the track splits out or as the Americans call the tracking sheet, you know, where track one is the kick drum or whatever it is. You write all that out. Also, to make a note of, takes so if it was a dodgy take or a good take and if it needs editing you would do that and then of course the real skill which stays with me even in computer world is punching in and out you know because in those days dropping in a vocal say it was you know the second line of the verse Mm -hmm. it was really complicated it's so easy now but in those days you had to press obviously play and then hit record at the right moment Mm -hmm. but on those early machines you had to switch from sync to playback and the engineer had to switch the desk from playback to line in it was you know it wasn't all automatic like it is now when we went to 24 track and we had the mci machines that was like a i can't it was like a oh my god because those machines automatically switched from playback to line in and the and the console switched from playback to line in yeah like that so the mci machine had also the erase head very, very close to the sync head. Again, for those that don't know how a tape machine works, mm-hmm. 
the sync head is about an inch earlier than the record head, and that's how you're able to overdub. You listen back on that, and it's the same head that you record on. Otherwise, everything you overdub would be out of sync. Mm -hmm. But the problem was no problem punching into record. It was punching out of record. When you drop out of record, because you've got physically about an inch and you're doing 15 inches a second, you can lose the front of a line if you're not fast, whereas the MCI machine put the erase head really close to the sink head, which meant when you punched out, you could punch out quite quickly. And so I got really good at dropping yeah. in and out. And that yes. became a real kind of go-to. So I would work on a lot of sessions where they had fairly shitty cabaret singers because they go, oh, Steve can punch you in and out, punch you in and out, you know. That's funny. So Last I can year... remember one session. Oh, I'll tell you about the session. Please, I please. I remember working with Tony McCauley with David Soul, and David Soul was punching in and out every word. I mean, it was so complicated. I mean, he can sing, but he wasn't sure. delivering the performance that Tony wanted. It was like, oh, yeah. can we just punch in the? Can we punch in lady? You know, it was like, oh, my God. Anyway. That's funny. In their, Last... defense, in their defense, though, it's really interesting. I was having this conversation with some of my students the other day. Each generation knows the technology that they have and gets really, really good at it. So singers of that period were really good at singing along and punching in so it became a seamless ah. performance. Singers today are not good at doing that. You have to record you know, the whole verse and get yes. the line you want because they lose flow you know, yes. because you can comp so easily now on a computer. They're yeah. not used to matching you know, one That's word, right. one phrase. Those singers were really good at doing that. That's Plus, those great. singers were great at double tracking because when you double track, you know, a good singer will lay back on the T's and the S's and kind of create a performance that's a double track as opposed to an exact duplicate performance. Whereas some of the younger singers I work with, I have to remind them when they do the double track, can you go easy on the T's and the S's and the breaths because we don't need, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Anyway, I digress. Wow. Wow. Last year, I talked with Alan Parsons. And about a week or two after we talked, the Get Back documentary came out. And I don't know if you've seen it or whatever. but I have. I, there, there he is, young Alan in his orange Exactly. <laughs> and I could tell it, you describing a tape op and mixing, messing with things. I remember that's what I could see him doing in the background. That's exactly what he said. Alan was a tape op. That was it. And I wish I had seen Get Back before I talked to him because I would have asked him about it, but it didn't It didn't work out that way. No, it's fantastic. And what's so great is that there's a scene in that last episode, for those that haven't seen it, about maybe 30 minutes on where there's a, the camera's sort of behind the console and you've got Alan Parsons, then you've got Chris. I mean, essentially, what I'm, I don't want to ruin it for people, so I won't say any more, but essentially what you've got is one scene with three people that are about to become incredible record producers yes. in yes. their own right. That's right. Starting with Alan Parsons' <laughs> left of picture, but I won't say any more because right. I haven't seen it. I remember that exact shot. I know exactly what you're talking about now, yeah. that same thought. So, okay, so you venture out on your own. I mean, the first, now you've done a lot of things. Um, I've narrowed my questions down to mainly the ones that I know or have a long history with or whatever. Culture Club being the biggest probably of all of these. Where do you, how, who selects you to be the producer of these Culture Club albums? And I mean, I have a lot of questions about this. The success of that band, specifically Boy George in general, at that time, I think took everyone by surprise. So I'm guessing when 
a record label comes to you and they say, we have this band, the, the lead singer is super flamboyant. He's no, in a relationship. None of that. None of, none that. of that. Okay. So that's what I'm wondering. So, what are these pre-talks like? So, well, first of all, I worked with the band before we had a deal. Oh. So how it came about was as follows. Now, I apparently, John said he'd met me because John's brother, talking of the clash, John's brother had done some roadieing for the clash. Mm. And John himself was in a punk band called London. Now, they did do some demos at CVS, but that's one session that I didn't work on. Okay. Now, I was then, because of everything I've just said about synthesizers and learning my craft, the word got around town. And it's worth remembering that England at that point, what went on in London stayed in London. What went on in Liverpool stayed in Liverpool. What went on in Manchester and Sheffield. That's why all those bands of that era are from that area. And there's yes. no intermingling because there was no Makes internet sense. so yeah. i would argue around london i was known because we'd worked on these records and other bands came to me to say could you do some engineering for us blah 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 for simon and i were quite busy on a freelance basis doing all sorts of different sessions because we'd made a name for ourselves mm-hmm. so i essentially produced a guy who was he was signed to cbs a guy called john howard CBS had then dropped him, but I'd worked on some other tracks with his producer, Nicky Graham. And interestingly enough, the drummer on those sessions, before he was in The Clash, it's just really funny because Topper was a really good session drummer around London before he worked for The Clash. He was, a, you know, so I'd worked with Topper on a couple of different sessions and he'd actually played on some of John's records. So I'd actually known Topper you know, before he joined the Clash. Wow. Obviously, Terry Chimes was the first drummer sure. in the first block. But once we did the later tracks and Topper came, because I remember Mick saying, oh, well, we got this guy Topper. And, and I said, I know Topper. I've worked with him before. And, he, you know, Topper was an amazing drummer. So we did tracks with John. John, And then I did one, I'd written a song. And I did this song with John. And we got some airplay. And Ashley Goodall, who is Howard Goodall's brother, the famous film composer, phoned me and said, I was driving home last night and I heard your track on Capital Radio, which was the London-based FM station. He said, I thought the production was really good. Will you come in for a meeting? So I came in for a meeting. He said, look, we've got the angelic upstarts. You know, punk is changing. It's, it's, it's morphing into something else. Will you produce their next record? Because they very much want to change direction. They'd like to incorporate some synthesizers. They'd like to incorporate some drum machines. But have the angular guitars and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So I said, yes. So I recorded an album with them. It was very low budget, very quick, but their manager was Tony Gordon. And Tony came to the sessions and really loved what I was doing. And he said, Steve, will you come with me and have a look at this band? There's a band called Culture Club. And I like John Moss, the drummer, to come and see you and see if there's a way you can do some demos with me. He said, because, you know, they need some demos done. You know, they, I think they're good live, but no one's going to get it unless... You know, we hear it. So John came to see me and we decided, you know, on the, on the yes, let's see if we can do it. So we phoned Ashley Goodall and said, can we blag a couple of days of free studio time? So January 1982, we got a couple of days of studio time. We did the demos for White Man and I'm Afraid of Me. And EMI decided not to sign them. And so we sat there with these tapes for several months, not able to get a deal. And eventually we got a deal with Virgin. And so 
once the deal was in place, of course, I was part of the band at that point and yeah. was the fifth member, if you like, for the three albums that, that I, I worked with them on. And we became, wow. you know, five very yes. focused, very, you know, bah. Yes. Yeah, so that, a team. that started. I, I was just there by default because I'd worked on the demos and the okay. transition between demo and master was very invisible. Now, uh, going back to what I was kind of touching on earlier, the the uniqueness of Boy George, especially the flamboyance at that time in our history before people really knew what to do with all of that. Was he like that in the studio? Did you have Absolutely. any guidance? He was like that from day one. Was he? And in fact, again, if you look at the archive footage, you'll see that George was George before George was George the pop true, star. There's true. lots of archive footage of him going to Billy's or Fubert's or any of yeah. those clubs in the West End. But again, it was only the West End. Yeah. You know, and it was even subdivided there. If you think of Depeche Mode, who are from Essex, which is only less than 20 miles outside of London, it was still separate. Yeah. And it's a really interesting way that it was. No, yeah. George was like that from day one. George's voice was like that from day one. And our relationship is intact and is still lovely i mean i spoke to him a few days ago mm. you know we speak regularly we're still yeah. great in fact we he said very recently in an interview we're probably closer friends now than even then because just you know it was a madness yeah. it really yeah. was and as yeah. we've become mature and and sure. uh, you know we know our strengths and uh yeah we love each other dearly that's great he's the best he's one of the best interviews because his love and passion for music and what he's done and the music he likes comes across so thoroughly and he's so funny and so droll. I love listening to Boy George be interviewed. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, yeah. the thing that is good about the band and is one of those unique things. I, I, I liken it to examples in the past where you have a producer artist relationship. Obviously I'm going to compare it with Sir George Martin and the Beatles. It, you, when you have those relationships with, or, Chin and Chapman with you know the bands that they worked with, Susie Quattro. You have a producer-artist relationship that's absolutely integral. Everyone kind of has a shorthand. Everyone yeah. knows what they're doing, and everyone is censoring everybody else's performance to make sure the best is there. And that's kind of what we did. We fought all the time in the studio, and we all had massive egos, and we all, but we all wanted the best. Yeah, you know that's yeah. what we were fighting for, and we've made yeah. great records that still I'm really proud of to this day. I mean, the fact that do you really want to hurt me in a couple of months time will be 40 years old is breathtaking is crazy so much of the story of those early years as george tells it is fraught with the with the fights between him and john and not yeah, you know there was that act did you see that play out there love absolutely. affair and or whatever yeah absolutely i mean that was the thing they were an item from day one and they also had a very fiery relationship and and that's what always has caused both the friction but also caused George the angst to write those great songs because yeah. as I've said in interviews you know do you really want to hurt me do you really want to make me cry that's a phenomenally powerful line and that's about how John treated him on times he made him cry and yeah. vice versa yeah. and you know their relationship was a very very loving but also fractious relationship and also you've it's you've also got to put that relationship back in 1982, not in 2022. Exactly. Because it was still really different then. For George to be as open as he was then was incredible because I remember when it was George's um, 21st birthday party, um, there was a party on a boat 
that uh, Richard Branson had organised. And George Michael was, you know, a guest there. Mm. And George at the time, George Michael at the time, was still really struggling with being open about his sexuality because yeah. his fear was that his career would be over. Now, of course, not only is that never going to happen now, possibly the opposite is exactly. true. You know, yep. But back then, for yep. George to be like that, and the other thing that was incredible, and I've said this before in interviews, I sat with George in the studio and we'd have downtime, you know, back to this tape op thing. There'd be like a few hours where we'd be lining the tape up or mm -hmm. copying stuff. So we were in the studio, but we couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And George had this guy that would drive him, you know, from the office to the studio because George couldn't at that time go on public transport. You know, he got hassled all the time. Yeah. So he had this driver um, and he would go and pick up the mail from the uh, office. And I mean, we're talking like sacks of mail, like mm -hmm. literally those big, like the American mail sacks. Yes. You know? And they were full of things. And we'd sit there reading them. And some of the content was just incredible. It was from young boys, especially yeah. young boys, saying, George, I've been able to have an open conversation with my parents about my sexuality. These are like 14, 15-year-old boys yeah. who wouldn't have been able to do that three or four years ago because they loved George so much. And they felt George was open. And in many interviews, George and his own mum had been you know, completely open and loving. It gave them a strength and a voice. And I remember reading sure so many great letters from boys saying to George how he'd made their life so much easier. And that's not true right. for everybody, but sure. those that were George fans and felt comfortable having that conversation with their parents, they led a better life. Yeah. You know, there was, I don't you know, think he or the band get enough credit for that, for changing the culture the way he did, especially from an American perspective where we didn't make rock pop stars like boy George or yeah. David Bowie. In fact, it, it must've been a bit of a shock. I'm guessing that culture club became as huge as they were here where <laughs> we still weren't coming completely to terms with what George was or who he was or what he was about or his sex life or anything. We were, he was just such an abnormality. It was so unique. We didn't think about it like that, you know? No, but isn't that strange? That is such a paradox in America. You, you know, one of the things that is a great uniting thing in America is America's love of music. Yeah. And you've only got to look at, you know, the success in the 60s of Motown and Atlantic, which is predominantly black music, where you still had segregation. Yeah. And yet the music came through. You still have, during the 80s, it was the beginning of the kind of, you know, right-wing Christian movement moving forward, getting more control over the, the political arena. Mm -hmm. You know, Reagan was your president. Mm -hmm. And yet the music rose above that. And I think that's, that's right. the one amazing thing. Music is just, it, it kind of can cut through things. Yes, I agree. How did Helen Terry get inserted into the system? Because she, especially on the second album, <clears throat> Color by Numbers, she becomes, she plays more of a prominent role. There's yeah. some songs so that are Helen, almost duets between them. Yeah, so Helen came on board because when we did the first couple of demos, we realized that whilst the band can do backing vocals, it was the wrong sound. You know, when they did backing vocals, it sounded a bit more like, dare I say, you know, more like Spandau Ballet, a bit mm -hmm. too chanty. Mm -hmm. And we wanted, a, you know, our love is Motown and Philly. And so we'd already thought, wouldn't it be great because so many great Motown records that we love and great Philly records we love have female vocals mixed in it. You know, again, I use the four tops as an example, you know, the Andantes sing 
with the four tops. That's the sound of male and female backing. Yes. And we love that sound. So that's what we wanted. We just needed someone to fulfill that function. And George had met Helen at some gay club and said, I'm going to send Helen down to see you. She said she's a really good singer. She says she's worked with this one and that one and this one and that one. I don't know. She came down to the studio. I loved her instantly. And she became my vocal machine. And you're right. She did the vocals on Do You Really Want to Hurt Me as the first kind of um, track. But then when we started recording the rest of, you know, we'd finished because it's really interesting how the, the album had been put to bed and done, and then we did Time Clock of the Heart as a separate yep. track. Time Clock of the Heart was the time where we were able to record as a successful band. Up until that, all the recordings on the first record were a band that was not successful. We became successful during that album. So Do You Really Want to Hurt Me was a huge hit, but we'd already finished the album, it was out. Mm -hmm. So the next recording session we did was Time Clock of the Heart. So we had a bit more time and a bit more you know, confidence. And that's why I started with Helen you know, multi-tracking her more and more. And then by the time we started the Colour by Numbers album, you know, we, we released Time uh, Christmas 82. But January 83, we went straight back in the studio and we did uh, Mr. Man and Church of the Poison Mind as the next batch of songs. Church of the Poison Mind was a, you know, I mentioned Motown is our ode to everything like My that. favorite culture club. Song. Whereas Time is our ode to kind of Philadelphia because we were allowed to have real strings for, for the, you know, oh, on that. The, um, so good. So our confidence grew and grew. And also Helen was able to spend more and more time with me in the studio. And she said in the, you know, in her interviews, 
you know, her and I would just be in the shed for hours and days, in fact, layering up those vocals. And then we would add the male parts where we needed it. So, for example, you know, Phil Pickett did some vocals. Roy did some, even I, you know, even there's a couple, I've, I've got some multi-tracks and there's one where I've started one of the tracks. I can hear it was me and Roy doing something. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. But just, it was essentially Helen was 90% of it, but just occasionally we needed a male voice. And that's the only addition to that was when we did Miss Me Blind. when we used Jermaine Stewart because we thought Miss Me Blind had a bit of a kind of Leon Silver's vibe, a bit of a, not necessarily exactly the whispers, not exactly Shalimar, but in that kind of Leon <sighs> Silver's vibe. And Mikey, for some reason, was friendly with Jeffrey Daniels. Um, and at one point, Jeffrey Daniels wanted me to produce a track with him. But then for some reason, I, 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 can't, I sort of can't remember how it happened. I remember Jeffrey Daniels coming to the studio with his tapes. And then Jermaine Stewart came down and they said, you know, Jermaine is actually the voice of Shalimar. And if you, I mean, with Jodie Watley's defence, because she can uh -huh. sing, but uh -huh. the very, very high vocals on Night to Remember, as an example, that's yeah. not Jodie Watley, it's Jermaine Stewart. What? The top notes of Jermaine Stewart. My so mind wanted, is blown right now. So we'll listen to Night to Remember again. I will. I love that song. Line, but okay. I just say, so if you listen again to Night to Remember, focus your ear on the high falsetto line okay. of, of the refrain, and you'll hear that that's actually Jermaine Stewart. And we oh wanted God. that kind of sound yes. on Missing Blind. So Jermaine did all the backing vocals on that. Wow. By the third album, I don't know. It seems to have almost run its course. The songs weren't as strong. Although, even though the war song has some of the dumbest lyrics ever, that's another one of my very favorite Culture Club songs.
I love the the world music feel to it, the steel drums, and there, you can yeah. always count on that band to be so cultural, to have reggae and the soul foundations, like you're talking about, a little bit yeah, of everything, even Karma Chameleon. The problem with the third album, I think the songs are good, and I think the production is good. I think we were rushed. We didn't have as much time. The demands from the record company started to implode on the band, because up until the mix of the second album, the, the record company had virtually nothing to do with the, the band. Yeah. I remember them coming to the studio as I was mixing Karma Chameleon and them saying, oh, this sounds pretty good. Oh. You know, they, they hadn't been involved, whereas then Virgin has grown as a company and sadly the demands were such, George's demands were such. There are probably a few vocals on that third album that could be better if I'd have had a few more Mm. moments but mm. generally in fact i had this conversation with roy the other day i think the third album could benefit i wouldn't touch the other two well mm -hmm. i might i might um restore the first album because the first album actually i'm very happy with it but mm -hmm. technology has moved on a bit mm -hmm. <clears throat> so i'd probably restore them to make sure they're as good as they could be but the third album could benefit from what we know now on those mm -hmm. tracks mm -hmm. You know, I, and I urge that. people to listen to some of them. tracks like Mannequin or The Dive. They're really very good songs, but they just, you know, and yeah. also a band cycle. You know, the bands move on, you know. Yeah. And so the, there was already the next band coming along. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. My favorite Culture Club album is Don't Mind If I Do. And you worked on that. That was kind of their comeback album that didn't fully get to be the comeback that it probably should have been. I think they were. The behind the music had just become sort of a thing in That's the states. That's exactly what happened. Yes, there was a yeah. the behind the music documentary on VH1 had sort of shone a new light. They released the greatest hits, which did really well. And so I just recorded one track on that record, which was fun to work with because we, although we, we, you know, it's not like we'd not seen each other. We'd seen each mm -hmm. other all the time, and I'd only just come back from Los Angeles, and so I'd seen Roy, you know, very frequently. Mm -hmm. Our kids had all grown up. But we did the, the album, and as you say, the album was kind of all right. But by then, I actually was having huge success with the Honeys in the UK. So what's, what's the one song you did on Don't Mind If I Do? See Through. See Through, okay. No apology necessary. Shut your mouth, you've closed your mind. We've been walking this road forever. It don't lead to paradise. In the mirror, your sad reflection haunting you. Now I see mine. Yes, I see mine. And you just don't get it. But you just might regret it. You might regret it. Shooting the rainbows from the sky. The technology had moved on. I, I, I enjoyed it because 
I was able for the first time to record Mikey to hard disc and and um, actually saw how he played against the drums of John. Because you know, I always knew that Mikey had a particular vibe, and, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I could sort of sonically analyse it. So yeah, it was, it was a good fun thing to do. And as I said, I've worked with Jordan so many things over the years. So yeah. yeah it's just a one, moment. It, that's amazing. One last question as it pertains to Boy George. Were you seeing his drug-induced kind of downfall that was so sad? Not at all. Real? None, okay. no, none of that happened under my watch. That was very much post my period with him. And by the time I'd worked with him again, as you say, on see-through, he'd gone in and out the other side. So yeah, yeah. that period, I wasn't part of that. Okay. Okay. So while this is going on, you're doing a few other things that I want to touch on. That Beach Boys album is unlike anything else in their in their catalog. Get You Back is one of my very favorite Beach Boys songs. I love that tune. How did Brian Wilson settle on you to produce that album? So this goes back to Bruce Johnson, who has always mentored me from a very early age back to the Sailor record, which he produced. I was working with Ziggy Marley in Tough Gong in Jamaica, and I was doing their album. And um, I get a call from Bruce to say that they've done a new deal with Jimmy Garcia and Brother Records. And because of the success of Culture Club through CBS, because in this States, Virgin didn't exist in the beginning, and and, um, the album was through CBS. So they said, okay, well, there's a deal to be done here. You know, we'd love to do the album, and obviously with you, you know, headlining the, the record or sort of, not headlining, that's the wrong word, with you kind of overseeing the product. Because, you know, up until that point, all the stories you heard about the Beach Boys were pretty true. They'd spend a lot of time in the studio, waste a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We'd move to a new era of record making. That wasn't acceptable anymore. Here's the budget. You guys have got to stick mm-hmm. to the budget, and we need a record at the end of it. So that's kind of part of my role in that was that they knew my steering of a project, not just my record production, but in the old title of record producer as an A&R man, you know, looking at the budget of the record and making sure it all works. So Bruce said, look, we're coming to London. You can meet Carl and everyone else. So they came to a gig in London and I met with them all there. I met Carl for the first time and they said, well, the only thing now is the uh, situation with Brian and Dr. Eugene Landry. Mm. 
So, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, so I won't go into too well, much detail. We've but heard these everything stories. you've heard about movies. Landy is true. Okay. And if you've not seen the film, Love and please Mercy. see it, Love and Mercy, because Paul Gamicchio, if that's how you pronounce his name properly, mm. plays Landy so brilliantly in that film. Mm-hmm. He has watched him. There's ticks that he does that are... When I watched it with my wife, we left the cinema slightly shaken as to how accurate that was to Landy. It's really accurate. And the one... You've seen the film, haven't you? Yes, I have. Okay, so I won't spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, but you know the scene where Brian is in the limo and he meets um, Melinda? Mm -hmm. I have that on video. The actual thing? Well, well, the equivalent of that scene. Really? Yeah. And at the end of the film, when they make the telephone call to Carl, uh-huh. I was with Carl when he took that call. No way! Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Wow. That's amazing. And i got to go watch the movie again now, though. Yeah, anyway. So, Brian and... Landy come to Jamaica, believe it or not, mm. to Tough Gong Studios and meet with me. They meet the Marlies, they meet the, you know, have a lovely time. I'm afraid I don't have a recording of it and I don't have any pictures or video, but the uh, band, the house band, you know, the Whalers band that were in the studio asked Brian if he would play Surfer Girl for them on the piano, which he did. And I have a fond memory of them doing it, but with them harmonizing. But unfortunately, we didn't record anything. It's just a memory, but it did happen. Anyway, after that, we got on great, and I have a great relationship with Brian to this day, and then the the record was was made. The Uh record was, without doubt, one of the hardest records I'd made at the time. Landy was a massive pain in the ass throughout the whole proceedings, and it was a difficult record. I love what I made. It was, you know, the brief was... The Beach Boys meet the eighties, and that's what it was. So everything was. was the latest technology was used, and it's a great record, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of my relationships with the band, which, you know, certainly Brian and Carl, Carl up until his death, and and Brian to this day, you know, they're, they're good solid relationships, and I understood Brian in a way that I probably haven't understood anyone else because he told me stuff when we were working that you go. Exactly. I get it. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's a great record. And for those that haven't listened to it, give it a listen. It's a good record. What's the, what was the dynamic like with Mike Love? Uh, you know, he, get, he takes a lot of heat. Maybe he deserves it. I don't know. But in that moment, was there, were there two factions like the Brian team and the Mike Love team kind of fighting with no, each other? There, no, there really wasn't. And, uh, you know, Brian and him, were fond. I've got video footage of some of the sessions. There was no issues whatsoever. Okay. The only thing that was probably separate was that well, Mike Love, you mentioned, Get Your Back. Mike Love was, you know, he had that idea of that song fairly early on. And he said, I'm going to be bringing Terry Melcher to the studio. Is that okay? And I went, oh, my God, of course, that's, that's more than Legend. okay. Yes. So then he told us some great stories. Um, but that was very much the way they wanted to do that track. And then Terry was around for a little bit, but then in, in the same way that um, Carl brought Mona in, you know, it was just, it was the way it was, you know, it was the way it was. And there was no problem at all. It was all okay. fine. What you about know? the appearance of Stevie wonder? How did that happen? So, Okay. So here's a great story. And this is all true. Okay. 
So I'm sitting in the studio one day and the phone, the receptionist, this is at Westlake Audio. So the reception phones me in the studio and says, um, Steve, I've got Stevie Wonder on the phone for you. And I went, what? And I actually genuinely thought they were larking around because we'd already had a few jokes like that when the studio phoned very early on and said, Steve, got some bad news for you and i said what i said oh you know your multi-track that you brought all the way from england for the beach boys sessions the shippers have just dropped it off the truck in beverly boulevard i I said no 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 they have and it was all completely smashed so i don't know so i go hello Uh hello and he goes oh steve it's stevie here (laughs) oh she said i know you're in town now here's my now all through my life, I've told you earlier about my synthesizers things. And, you know, I've been the kind of my kids call it or they're young ladies now. But when they're at university, it was an ask Steve moment. So some of the other students would go. So Rosie would phone me and go, Dad, I've got so and so. He's got an ask Steve moment. And it would be like, you know, can you a Mac issue or what? Can you fix this or whatever? So Stevie Wonder says to me. I've got a technical problem that I think you can solve. And I went, what is it? He said, well. You've got a Lindrum, haven't you? And I said, yes. And he said, I've got two Lindrums and I've got a synchronizer. He said, and I'm trying to hook them up and I can't get them to work. He said, would you mind popping up to the house and showing me how to do it? And I said, yeah, I'll come up tomorrow morning because the sessions were always starting at about midday. So I said, well, we'll come up about nine if that's okay. And he said, yeah, sure. So he gave me the address. We drive up to his house and he comes down and shows me the, the machines. Now, what's so great in his own home, and his own studio and his own equipment, you have no idea the man is blind because he mm. knows where everything is. Mm-hmm. So he shows me, he says, look, I've got the back beat here. So he's playing the beat on Lin 1. And bearing in mind that LM1 is a very rare machine. I still have mine, by the way. Mm. Only 500 were ever made. I had one. Prince has one. Stevie had two. Trevor Horn had one. You know, you start to go through the list and there's not many people left. Right. You know. Anyway. <laughs> So he plays the beat that he's got, and he said, okay, so I've done that, and on the other one, I've got congas, tambourine, shakers, but I want them to run together, and I can't get them locked together. And he said, I've got this SRC, uh, which is a German device called a friendship. He said, and I know you've got one of those. He said, I can't get it to work. Now, the friendship was complicated for a sighted person. It's very complicated for a blind person because all little displays, but I knew what the problem was straight away. I said, I know what the problem is, Stevie. When you turn the machine on, it defaults to 25 frames because it's a European product, even though the voltage is sensing and you can plug 110 and it's no problem. I said, this is what's happened. It's it's um, automatically defaulted to 25 frames. And of course, in America, you're 30 frames and that's the problem. It's drifting out of sync. So I said, this is what you have to do. You have to hold this button and this button when you power on, bing, and it goes to 30 frames. He went, um, and bing, and it worked. So I said, there you go, it's done. And he, he said, so how's it going with the Beach Boys? I said, oh, you know, we're getting there, you know, it's early days. He said, do you want any songs? And I said, well, if you come and play on the track, the answer is yes. I said, if you've got a song, play it to me. I'll give it to Carl and I'll try and get them to, to do it. So he yeah. played me a demo song on cassette, which I do have, of a song. And then um, I played it to um, Carl. And he said, well, if Stevie will play on the track, then it's a deal. So I phoned him and he said, Carlo said, yes, we'll do the track if you come and play on it. He said, yeah, of course I'll come and play on it. So that's what happened.
There's way. more to that story for another time, but essentially that's what happened. And Stevie is playing all those instruments on the track. And I do have Stevie's voice doing, because Stevie did a guide vocal. I still have that. No one's heard that, by the way, but I do have it. That is incredible, Steve. That's incredible. And it was the most marvelous experience because I love Stevie Wonder. You know, he's a hero of mine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just this, when you see him in the studio and you see the way that he works, you know, again, for another time, the in-depth of the oh. way those sessions worked and how he is, oh. is just breathtaking. Oh, man. Um, okay, I got to ask you, too, about Quarter Flash. Because yeah. Back into Blue, that's, I think, their third album. That That was near the end. And it's not like the band breaks up because Marv and Rindy are married to each other. But yeah. were there signs that their time had come to an end or it had been played out? Well, what was, was the experience a, there? It was an interesting thing. I got an approach from Geffen Records to do the record. And actually, funnily enough, there were quite a few people told me not to do it. But I kind of met them and I really liked them. Yeah. And I really liked her. And I thought, you know what? And they said, Steve, we don't want to record in America. Can we record in Europe? And I said, well, yeah, why don't we? And I said, well, look, I've just done a French group called Telephone in, in Miraval Studios, which is now owned by Brad and Jolene. <laughs> but it, at the time, it was owned by Jack Lussier, the uh, French jazz uh, bass player okay. or jazz pianist. Although everyone in England knows it through an advert that he did, which no has bass. <laughs> so Jack Lussier, the famous jazz musician, we'll say. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'll do that again so you've got it. So Miravel was owned by Jacques Lussier, the famous French jazz musician. And he had this lovely studio in an outbuilding separate to where they made the wonderful Miravel Rosé, which they make to this day, which Brad and jo Angelina Ange Jolie Angelina. still manufacture. It's the best, best, I don't drink, but it's the best rosé wine in the world anyway. So they said, yeah, let's work there. So we did the whole album there. And it was a joyful experience. The only thing was, as you say, they were probably coming to the end of their reign. And it's a real shame because there's one of the tracks on there sounds almost identical to that Fleetwood Mac track, Little Lies. And we recorded that at least a year, maybe two years. If you listen to Tell Me Lies, listen to the way the guitar chords are. It's, yeah. it's very similar. Um, but, but you know. You, Do you remember the name of the Quarter Flash song? I was just listening um, to that album yesterday, but now I got to do it again to make sure yeah, I understand. Is it, is it Walking on Thin Ice? I can't remember. Sorry. I'll find You'll it. It's okay. Listen to the Fleetwood Mac, because on the Fleetwood Mac album, they released the one with the sort of plant picture on it. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's just the way the guitar was, because Marv was really into unusual guitar tunings. And obviously that's a, you know, trademark of Lindsay Buckingham as well. Mm -hmm. But that riff, which we did on guitar synth, actually, but it does bear a very similar, similar, you know. But, yes, it was a, it was a very okay. sad fact that the album wasn't very successful, but that's the way it goes, you know. I'm curious. I enjoyed my time on it, and it's a great record. It's a shame it's not been promoted or they haven't got a sync, because there's some actually very good lyrics in, in the in the in the. I agree. You know, I like them a lot. Um, one thing I was curious about, the the prior albums, especially the debut, the hallmark or the uniqueness of the quarter flash sound was that saxophone. That saxophone didn't sound like anybody else's saxophone, but there's not a lot of sax on this album. And I wondered if there's that only was a, a decision. No, Ridley played sax on it, but they wanted to move more towards synthesizers themselves. So there's guitar synth and other keyboards. She did play sax on a few songs. Yeah. Um, but it's not as pro it's not as much because also right. their trademark song, Harden Your Heart, Harden Your Heart. Uh -huh. Their trademark song, Harden Your Heart, 
has sacks all over it. And I think they felt they didn't want to be a one trick pony and they wanted yeah. to move on. You know. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. What about China crisis? I, that first, that album is too long. I, I can never remember the name of it, but I, the, they are such a fun and kind of quirky, unique synth pop band that becomes very quickly like Steely Dan Jr., which you would never yeah. have guessed. No, and I wouldn't have guessed it at the time of working with them. So I started recording with them and we just did those first few tracks and we were actually scheduled to do a whole load more. But they kind of got cold feet about working in London because at the time they were using a studio up here in Liverpool. And so consequently, we only did those tracks. Mm. We've remained friends. In fact, I, I see them because I live in Liverpool. I see them very, very regularly. Mm. Um, and I also do some master classes for Lippa and they do, you know, they're, they're part of the faculty. So um, it's one of those things. I love the tracks we did. I think they were a bit ahead of their time, actually. Totally. And definitely. other bands kind of filled the gap. And it wasn't until they did the, um, the, the Flaunt the Imperfection album that they really moved to another level. And so consequently, they have a very robust, solid, live thing. And they're still touring to this day. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. Feel to be Driven Away is my favourite of the block I did. Okay. I love that song. Good one. Um, And then I think you have a Grammy and it's for producing Denise Williams gospel album, right? That's correct. No, no, actually, no. The album itself isn't a gospel album, but the one track I believe in you was entered in the gospel because it is a gospel song and it won best gospel, a Grammy for best gospel performance.
And the thing about it, which is kind of one of those things, I didn't know that I'd won it until the, the Grammy people phoned me to send me my certificate. But because I didn't go to the show, I haven't got one of those little, you know, the, the statues, which really You don't me. have a I've Grammy been... statue? No, I've got the certificate, but I don't okay. have, you get a certificate and a statue. But because I didn't go to the show, I never got a statue. Oh, that's you. You were robbed. That's not fair. Why were you selected to work with Denise? She seems kind of, uh, you know, an outlier. She's um, great, by the way. But I'm just curious. Again, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I went to a live management, and I will never forget the day of the meeting. Because it, the day of the meeting to go and get the gig was the day of the Challenger disaster because I was driving oh, to the meeting wait. and I turned the radio on, bearing in mind it's Los Angeles time, so it was already a bit behind. And I heard them say about the Challenger blowing up and I went, oh, my God. So the meeting was a really weird – it's like certain meetings yes. in your world are pointed. I remember going to a meeting with another band the day of 9-11. I remember being oh. on the tube and when we got to the office, the television was on and we saw the plane go into the – out yeah. so with denise williams that meeting was a really weird meeting not not because of her just because sure. we all were so down about the, yes. the the challenger but she was with the live management at that time and they were kind of following my career as it were and they said you know we'd really love to do a record with you and uh she wants to do it in england and that's kind of how it started and um i've Fortunately, I mean, if you look at the songwriting credits on there, there's one of Diane Warren's very first songs. I remember Diane Warren phoning me to give me the song and phoning me every other day about how's it going. So we're probably going to do that now. But anyway. <laughs> She's got a lot of songs to worry about now. She probably doesn't call every yeah. other day. So that was a long time day. ago. Yeah. I mean, that's ne- that's coming up for nearly 40 years. It was uh, 85, wasn't it? I think we did that. Yeah, I believe it was. 80, yeah. Um, okay. I was curious, too, about your... Um, your work with America. Uh, yeah. Like where did that come from? And I think you did another, I, I only know this album because I read about it looking into you, Beckley lamb and somebody did they. Wilson, yeah. So I have known Jerry Beckley for a really long time. Huh? Um, I met Jerry Beckley because when culture club was successful, the very famous and very lovely Brian Louts, who's like Mr. Big Cheese at CAA, was not Mr. Big Cheese at CAA in those days. And Brian Louts used to come and pick me up from the airport. So Culture Club were being handled by ICM in the States in the early part of their career. And Brian was one of their kind of guys that was trying to look for syncs because that was a very, very new world then to mm-hmm. sort of see if bands could, you know, collaborate with movies mm-hmm. write material from is that you know because again if you look at the timeline it's the start of those kind of john hughes style movies yes. it was very much that sort of thing so i had a great relationship with brian and he said to me i want you to meet jerry beckley because america at that time were just slightly on a hiatus thing and i met jerry and I, again i absolutely remember the day i met him we met in um so those that know los angeles as the beverly center the big kind of shopping center. And at the bottom of it was a restaurant called Kathy Gallagher's, which was Jerry's then wife owned this restaurant. So I met him there. And in 10 seconds of meeting him, I loved him. And we've been friends ever since. So we started working on tracks for movies, actually, which Brian had got us. And we've got some, again, there's a whole nother podcast about Jerry and I pitching for songs with Brian Louts for movies that we never had. To this day, 
None of them have ever been released. <laughs> but some of the songs we turned into other songs because they were good songs. Yeah. So that's kind of how it started. And then when America started putting some stuff together, they did that deal with American Gramophone. Jerry said, can we like do some stuff? You know, can we use some of these songs? So we rejigged a few things and they became American. Dewey put some vocals on and they became, you know, tracks. Yeah. And then I just licensed them to American Gramophone. Fascination with the light in your hair A celebration, nothing else can come there An invitation to share my life with you Stepping forward, reaching out for your hand Hear the music of the sea on the sand Like a vision rising out of the blue You and me and our love Determination To spend my life with you And then, but Jerry and I have worked on a million things ever since, you know. No way. Um, nothing hugely successful, but yeah. I love him for bits and we are still friends and blah, That's blah. That's wild. So you mentioning this, the sinking. In looking you up, I noticed somewhere on your resume is the She's Having a Baby soundtrack. And, which is a well, John Hughes movie. And I love that soundtrack. How are, where are you on there? So Brian Lapse's assistant, because ah. he had an assistant then, was this young girl called Tracy, who was British, actually. So Tra you know, th so this is still the same part of this pitching, pitching. So Tracy said to me, I wonder if you can help. We've got a terrible problem. And I said, what? Well, well, this is on trains, planes, and automobiles, which is actually the first thing I did. They've sunk in the original version. It's at the last, so this isn't a spoiler alert. So the last scene of the film where John Candy um, and Steve Martin come into the house. Yeah. They ran in the original Daryl Hall version. They ran in the Paul Young yeah. version. Yeah. They liked the Every Paul time Young you go version. away. Every time you go away was the song, yeah. yeah. However, because there were two male characters coming in to see in the house, it didn't feel right with a male vocal. Mm. It just looked odd. It just yeah. kind of looked mm. odd. So Tracy said, look, John signed this band called Blue Room, and it's got a, lead, a female lead singer, and she's got a good voice. Would you be able to do like a track that's as close as you can be sonically? Because it's got a, it, you know, we've already, it's got to be the same tempo and everything. Yeah. You know, we've got the rights to use the song, but it's got to be a female vocal.
Now, of course, for those that may or may not know, males and females often sing in different keys. <laughs> and one of the telltale signature sounds on the um, Paul Young version is an electric sitar that plays the lick. Mm-hmm. Electric sitar, very famously used. You mentioned Steely Dan earlier. Mm-hmm. Steely Dan used it. It's also been on many, many soul records, which is where I love it from. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it's played kind of quite open on the Paul Young one, and it plays the main riff. Change the key, suddenly the riff doesn't sound as good. So that was quite a nightmare. I had to do a combination of playing a real sitar and actually sampling the notes to stretch them to make it have that that kind of twangy. Because we had to transpose it. I can't remember now, but maybe it was up a you know minor third or something. But it was up a, a bit that uh-huh. made the... Made it more ding, 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 you yes. know, too, too short. Um, anyway, so we did that. John Hughes loved what we did, and that's what's in the movie. You know, if you uh-huh. hear the end movie, that's my track there. No way. Um, and then even before that film was even completely finished, he said, would you do this other track? We need the title track for She's Having a Baby. Dave Wakelin's written the song, but we need you to produce it. Because now, back to my thing of Steve's a safe pair of hands, I'm now a safe pair of hands in John Hughes's mind because I come in on budget, I come in yeah. on time, and that's the very beginning of needing different mixes and stems and giving the mixers kind of what they want. I kind of know what I'm doing, yes. therefore I get the job. So funny about that that film was that elizabeth mcgovern is the lead in there mm-hmm. and i worked with elizabeth on my radio series only a few years ago and i've never worked with her since but we have a, a mutual friend in yeah. common her drummer in her band i know really well and i needed an american voiceover and i said to the drummer i said tell would you ask elizabeth if she'll do it and then she phoned me and said i'd love to do it and i said you know what we've never met but we have we share this no way i just talked to dave uh, about a month ago and i'm seeing he's we became kind of friendly. He's a very big musician in my life and he's coming through town here in a couple of weeks and we're going to meet up during the show. So that I had no idea you worked on that song that of all the yeah. songs to work on, on that album. That's the one that means the most to me. That's crazy. Yeah, and in fact, there's a, there's a great track that really should be remixed because mm. I remember mixing it for the film. And then I think they may have mixed it for the record or so. I'm not sure, but no way. I think the record, I think there's more that could be got out of that. Because there's yeah. no other musician. It's only me, Dave, and 
a friend of his that played some bass on. There's no one else on that record. No it's way. Like a, you know, so anyway, it, it, there's always room for improvement. I had no idea. Okay, one Creatures. This is Susie, Sue, and Budgie doing their own thing yeah. away from Susie and the Banshees. They're, I think, married at the time, or at least together at yeah. the time. Um, what was it like working with them at that time, at that moment? Well, once again, back to safe pair of hands. Mm-hmm. So I did an interview in Sound on Sound magazine about home recording, and this was where it was starting to become actually possible to produce quality home recordings. I was then on ADAT, multi-tracking at home, keeping the budget down, but also being intimate with your artists mm-hmm. in a way that you can't do in the studio. Budgie called me out the blue and said, um, I've just read your interview in, in Sound on Sound. Susie and I have been talking. You know, that's how we want to work because mm-hmm. Susie hates going to big studios, you know, for her vocals and everything. Can we come and have a cup of tea with you and just chat? And I said, of course. And oddly enough, I'm a massive fan of Susie, of course. Mm-hmm. Our paths would actually never cross. She's one of the few people that all through the punk time, all through George's time, we know so many friends in common but mm. we'd never met. Interesting. So we decided to do the tracks. We do the backing tracks at my studio. We actually take the very seeds of his ideas, which they did in France, put them onto my system. I'm working on an early version of Mac on a log- on Logic, but it's ADAP, but I've got some hard disk as well. I think I had four tracks of hard drive, maybe mm. eight, but it was certainly four tracks on the first kind of what became Pro Tools, but it was called Sound Tools at that, that point. <laughs> So we, you know, obviously that again, each generation has the the tools. It was exciting to be able to do those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And also, what we did is we did some sub mixes on ADAP. Went to a recording studio to record Budgie's real drums and the marimbas. At um, we did that at Brit Rose Studios. And what was interesting about that was the combination of you know using a big studio where we needed it and my little studio to do the vocals and particularly the the say we did the guitar and the vocal at the same time as one take because that song if people don't know is her song written about billy mckenzie because billy mckenzie from the associates called her only a few hours before he committed suicide and that song say you only had to have you know she didn't what she told me was from the conversation nothing appeared to be wrong yeah yeah so that's the whole point of the song you only had to say you know we could have done something about it so that's a really i know i'm very proud to have done those tracks i really like them again whilst the home recording was good home mixing was less good Mm -hmm. at that time and those absolutely probably could have benefited from you know modern steve levine tweak um what was so funny about it though is um the very famous Merck McCudis was their A&R guy at the time. And I remember him coming to the house and um, listening to them. And from that, I then got, I did a couple of tracks with Aswa, same thing, because I think he was looking after them. Ah. Um, and a few other bits and pieces. And then ultimately that led to me working with Louise and then the Honeys, because it just okay. becomes word of mouth. We can record at home and therefore, you know. Yeah. A few months ago, I talked to Stephen Haig, the producer Stephen Haig. And uh, he worked with Susie on the Kiss Them For Me. And he was saying a couple of, telling me a couple of stories, but one in particular, which 
we took, I took as being actually really sweet. When it came time for her to do her vocals, she wasn't feeling it. She wasn't really getting it. And apparently Stephen Haig found out that it was because he wasn't making that day or that moment a big enough deal. Like she wanted to feel special on those days. He want, she wanted a cup of tea and the lighting just right. And how is your day, ma'am? And the right car to come pick her up and all and this kind of stuff. that's exactly what happened at my house. It was a very intimate, relaxed, really? exactly that way. And that's why the vocals are really, I think they're really good vocals. I yes. think Say's one of the best vocals of her whole career. I agree. And um, another interesting story, I had Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls on here, and you wouldn't think Indigo Girls and Susie in the same, uh, on the, you know, going in the same roads, but they did. And Amy was saying that Susie doesn't go anywhere without looking like Susie. Does, when she comes and perform and records in your home, is she made up like Susie Sue, or does she just look like a regular pretty person? No, okay. pretty much. Not, not kind of stage but but yeah the sure. clothes and the vibe you know my okay. girls loved her they thought she was so oh, cool she's an my icon. girls were like teenagers then yeah they thought she was so cool i yeah. love her um okay last one i had steve smith from the vapors on here last year and we talked about the, their new album together which is such an amazing comeback talk about a band that you would never have guessed would come back after 40 years or whatever it was with such a strong album and you worked on that album too they told me I was crazy from the start I said that you would only break my heart But you closed your eyes and trusted me You held my hand and believed in me I never really knew what you're about But I've had a great time finding out Never into teasing me, you were into fun and to pleasing me. And crazy don't seem crazy anymore. I don't know what you're waiting for. Once you come inside and lock the door, I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't care what other people see. I'm in love with you, you're in love with me. 
What you waiting for? What you waiting for? Right. Yeah, recorded, recorded and mixed in this very room. No way. So what? How, how did you get? How did you insert yourself into the Vapor's story right there? I've known Dave for many, many, many years, and then Dave approached me and said, "Look, I've written a bunch of songs. We think it's right." And at the time, they had um, this was just before the the lockdown, so they had um, an impresario that was putting together one of those shows where there was going to be, you know, them and four or five other bands of that era. So he was going to fund the record. So they had some merchandising uh-huh. and then we finished the record and suddenly everything was canceled and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the whole thing went, but it's a really great record. Dave I is really it. fortunate because Dave's voice sounds exactly like it did in 1978. Mm-hmm. Dave is also really lucky because his son, who's only 20 sounds like him as well. And so we were able to use Dave to do the lead vocals and his son did the BVs or the, or the two parts. That's great. And it's like a great sound. And the band are really, you know, the band are in good form. They're, they're just as uh, good. They've been doing it for a pretty long time. Yeah. And so I'm, I love that record. I think it's a really great record. I think it sonically goes back to my roots of the I punk agree. days of using the very simple things, you know, Fender amp, all those things. But it works well. I'm really proud of it. I think it's a great record. And it was um, quite successful here in the UK. We had two number ones. Yeah, it was a, it was a successful record. They deserve it. They're so good. Um, okay. That's pretty much everything I wanted to ask you about. I, If we have the time, I'm curious. What's one of your favorite stories? When you, I mean, you, I am shocked by how, how, keen your memory is on all of this stuff how many well, I great taken stories any drugs you see i don't take <laughs> drugs so my memory is pretty sharp <laughs> that'll do it do you have here's, a favorite no, here's, story here's of one missing... last memory yes one last please. memory and i'll leave it there. so post the um beach boys album many years not many years a few years later still with the live management i finished the denise williams album and they were looking at doing um, they'd signed Teddy Pendergrass and he was still in the wheelchair then. And he was making a recovery, but he wasn't great. So they said, would you meet him and have a conversation with him and see if there's something that can be done? So I met him at the American Music Awards and uh, they introduced me to him. And I had a conversation with him and it was very sweet. I was one of my heroes. It was very sad because he is one of my heroes. Yeah. Anyway, about, I don't know, 10 feet away was Dick Clark. So I said to the guy from the live, please introduce me to Dick Clark. You know, Dick Clark's like a legend, you know. Of course he is, yes. And he said, of course, of course, of course. You know, and, and Shep Gordon is like a big deal, you know. So yes. Shep goes, Steve, come with me. I'll introduce you. You know, and for those that don't know, Shep Gordon had a live management and he became like this hugely famous He's Alice manager. Cooper's guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he had Alice Cooper at the time, you know, and okay. maybe still does. I met Alice Cooper a couple of times with him. What a lovely guy Alice Cooper is, by the way. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So Shep says to me, of course, Steve, let me introduce you to Dick Clark. So go up to Dick Clark. Oh, I notice about three tables away. So this is, everyone does the meet and greet after the award ceremony is over and the lights are up. Mm-hmm. And the dessert on that day was a kind of chocolate gateau, like a really creamy American chocolate gateau. And I noticed at the corner of my eye, three tables away, Stevie Wonder sat at the table on his own stuffing cake into his face at which point he heard my voice and goes steve come and sit with me for a minute 
So in a crowded room, Stevie Wonder recognized my voice and said, so I sat with him and had a bit of cake with him. So I had cake with Stevie Wonder at the American Music Awards several years after I'd worked with him. Wow. That is incredible. That is incredible. Steve, you're the best. Thank you for talking with me. This meant so much. There is, I had, I was not mentally prepared for how much gold you were going to be spinning for us today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. There you have it. Steve Levine. So much fun. I loved him. So many fun stories and what a likable guy. Um, I want to close it out. I had mentioned on here, right or wrong, that that Quarter Flash album he made didn't feature as much of Rindy's saxophone. So let's close it out with one of the songs that does, because no one sounds quite like Rindy Ross. And this is Talk To Me off of that album. I want to express something to you guys. I don't think I've ever mentioned this to anyone before. So I had a goal this year to talk to the seven Stevens, the seven uh, wonderful producers of music that I love that happen to be named Steven. There's Steven Haig, Steven Taylor, Steve Levine, Steve Lillywhite, Steven Street, Stephen Lipson and Steve Hillage. Now, three of those people, as of this interview, as of this episode, have been on the show: Haig, Taylor, and Levine. Two of those, uh, two, two of the others, are in the can. They will be coming out in the next few weeks. One of those other ones has agreed to come on. We just haven't set up a time yet. And the fourth, I haven't heard from, and I may never hear from, and that's probably okay because I really like the other ones that we've had anyway. So that is a goal that I set for myself, and it looks like it's going to work out. Uh, so you have that to look forward to. Next week's episode, we're going class and rock, classic rock. We're talking to the one original member left of a band that's been at it for over 50 years. And it's another twofer, by the way. So we talked to that guy in the first half. The second half is the newer frontman of a classic rock band that's celebrating two uh, anniversaries this year. The 40th year from when it's st- when they started, and the 30th year from when this person took over. Interesting, right? Anyway, so classic rock next week. That's what we're doing. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakevich, my right-hand man, for doing this with me. Thank you, buddy. You guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We may have a bonus episode coming out later this week. Just depends on our schedules. I had a conversation recently with the director of a new rock doc that I wanted to share with all of you. Um, I hope you like it. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.
to me, baby. 